With the smoke still rising from the ashes of Jericho, the people of Israel look west to their next target, a town called Ai. After scouting it out, Joshua is told, This is a piece of cake. We only need two or three thousand soldiers. Let the rest of the people chill. Those three thousand soldiers were routed by the men of Ai, and thirty-six of Israel's soldiers were killed in battle. This set off a domino-like reaction among the leaders and people of Israel. It was clear to them, God had left them, something was up. Joshua too was devastated. He hit his knees and said, Oh Lord, why? God's reply to Joshua, Get up. I'm not with you because there's sin in Israel's camp. Jericho was to be a burnt offering to me. Someone's taken part of my offering. Joshua's told how to find who that someone is, and he does. Achan, from the tribe of Judah. Joshua confronts him. Give glory to God, Achan. Confess what you've done. Don't hide anything. Give Achan credit. There's no minimizing or rationalizing. Yep, I have it. Five pounds of silver. A bar of gold, by the way, the size of a Hershey candy bar. And a fine robe. I saw it, coveted it, took it and I hid it under my tent. I have a little fun with my students about all the ways Ake could have rationalized or minimized what he took. But the bottom line was, it belonged to God, and he had clear instructions, and he ignored them. Joshua is told to take Achan, his family, and all his possessions out into the valley and stone them. Yes, including his family. My students are rightfully troubled by this. They want to get God off the hook as a just God, by suggesting that his family knew all about it, were even in on it. Hey, it's pretty hard to hide something under your tent without your family knowing it. But I suggest to them, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. It points to that right in the text. God tells Joshua, Israel has sinned. They have broken my covenant. They have taken things under my ban. God sees the hidden sin of Achan and blames it on the whole nation. I then have a discussion with my students about the principle, I sin, you suffer. We talk about a fallen world where a drunken driver kills a little child on a bicycle. We're connected in community. God said in creation, it's not good for man to be alone. He connected his children, those made in his image in community. When one does something glorious, we benefit. When one does something despicable, we suffer. Achan sinned and 36 women and their children stood at their tent flaps for Daddy to come home. Daddy never came home from Ai. A nation was devastated, and leaders of that nation were disillusioned with God. Here's one of the clearest places in all of Scripture, how we're connected in community, and my behavior impacts others. With Achan dealt with, God returns to the side of Israel. They turned their attention to Ai, Read about Joshua's brilliant strategy for capturing it in Joshua chapter 8. The next town in their divide-and-conquer plan is Gibeon. Before they get to Gibeon, the men of Gibeon get to them. The Gibeonite deception. It's brilliant. The men of Gibeon come to Joshua and Israel. They're wearing worn-out sandals. Their bread is moldy. Their animals are exhausted. We've come from a long way. We've heard about your great God, and we'd like to make a treaty with you. Joshua asks, How far away? They said, We've worn out our sandals, and our bread is moldy, really far. 
Joshua and the elders examine the bread and sandals, but they forgot to consult the Lord about it. They make a treaty with this faraway group. Three days later, they come to Gibeon and run into these same dudes. They'd been had by these Hittites. They put themselves between a rock and a hard place. The rock, God's command to destroy the ites, and a hard place. Their sworn alliance in the name of God under the treaty. Joshua chooses to keep the treaty he's made in the name of God. Joshua's solution is they'll live, but they'll carry water and chop wood for Israel. Tell us where the bucket and axes are. We're good with that. The mayors of the Ite towns around Gibeon, however, were not singing the Hallelujah Chorus. They got together to attack Gibeon to teach them a real lesson. Gibeon then gets word to their new treaty partners, Israel. We're in big trouble. Come help us. If you were Joshua, wouldn't you be tempted to go, Karma, baby. What goes around comes around. Or at least drag your feet and get around to it when you don't have something better to do. Instead, Joshua marches his men all night toward Gibeon and attacks the five Ite kings. Here we come to a passage in scripture, another eye roller for skeptics. With the battle going totally Joshua's way, he just needs a little more light to finish off the five Ite kings. So he prays, God, do something with the sun and moon so I can have enough light. The words used are, sun and moon, stand still. If you're so inclined, you can research this online. Some will suggest Joshua asked God to stop the rotation of the earth. Others suggest it was a metaphor. All Joshua wanted was more light to continue the fight. Whatever it was, it was pretty special. The text says there was never a day like it ever before. Whatever God did, it was sufficient for Joshua and his men to mop up the five Ite kings. Having divided the western half of the promised land in half to cut off supply chains, Joshua and his men swing south, then north, to continue to conquer. One interesting incident cited is in Caleb. He was one of the faithful spies in the first reconnaissance of Israel 40 years earlier. Caleb is now an old goat. He comes to Joshua and said, 40 years ago when I came in as a spy, it was the people of Hebron, the Anakin, that scared off the 10 spies who gave the bad report, causing our 40-year timeout in the wilderness. I want Hebron. I want to demonstrate my God is powerful. Caleb, the old man, asked Joshua for the toughest spot to conquer in the promised land, and he takes it. As you read the rest of Joshua, Joshua parcels up the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, Levi gets cities and areas around them, but not a specific portion of land. God is their portion, their inheritance. You'll also notice that the conquering starts to get a bit anemic. Pockets of ites are left in place. The ites are cancer, and they leave pockets of cancer. That ought to go well. Joshua then sets up the cities for the Levites, and those six special Levite cities, the cities of refuge. Believing they'd done their part to help the tribes conquer the west side of the Jordan, Joshua sends the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh back to their inheritance on the east side of Jordan. On their way back, they make an honest mistake. They erected a memorial, a reminder. Unfortunately, they used an altar as that memorial. Perhaps remembering how angry God got at Jericho over Achan's small sin, 
Joshua and the rest of the tribes were terrified that God would see this as a massive offense. Thankfully, this time it was ready and aimed before fire. They got together and talked, realizing it was an honest mistake and not an idolatrous competitor. Things settled back down. The end of Joshua is much like the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua assembles the people and, much like Moses, urges them to choose to follow the Lord. He had to be skeptical. He draws a proverbial line in the sand and says, Generation 2, you'll either worship the gods of this land or you'll worship the God of Israel. Choose this day whom you will worship and serve. As for me and my house, we're going all in on the Lord, the God of Israel. We will serve the Lord. Then Joshua dies. On which side will they land? And what about their children, Generation 3? Will they be faithful to the Lord who's delivered the promised land to them? We'll get that answer in our next word picture.